In the past two weeks, I've been discussing the fairy laws of the 1880s as one of Third Republic France's signature social policies, providing free and compulsory secular public schools played a powerful role in integrating citizens into the Republic, providing them with a common language, providing an increasingly literate workforce to an expanding labor market on the French mainland, easing tensions between a conservative Catholic right that rejected everything to do with the French Revolution and the revolutionary tradition, uh, and those on the political left who embraced it. It was perhaps the single most important internal social reform of the late 19th century in France. Here, I want to talk about France's dramatic expansion overseas in the same time period. I want to pre present that overseas expansion as a reflection of, perhaps an extension of its investment in schools to create a new generation of citizens. The two of them, I think, were part of a single process of national integration, the one internal, the other external. Early in the 19th century, overseas imperialism looked like a thing of the past. In the aftermath of the Haitian Revolution, the abolition of the Atlantic slave trade, uh, Spain and Portugal lost their New World colonies. Britain and France supported anti-colonial resistance movements to the Ottoman Empire in Egypt and Greece, and they both claimed, at least they claimed, to be more interested in free trade than in controlling overseas territory. Classical liberalism, after all, sought to promote free trade, to avoid suffering, to respect individual rights, and avoid government interference. And yet, Towards the end of the 19th century, European powers, led by Great Britain and France, claimed vast expanses of the Earth's territory for themselves. We can think of modern imperialism as driven by European powers and Japan, and lasting almost a hundred years, from the Berlin Conference in the mid-1880s to the wave of independence movements in the 1950s and 60s. Algeria won its independence from France in 1962. So I'd like to provide a very brief overview of the relationship between classical liberalism and empire in the middle decades of the 19th century, and then focus on the late 19th century scramble for empire, especially France's role in it. For both France and Great Britain, the two you know, leading uh, imperial powers in this scramble for overseas empire. The late 19th century scramble is best understood, I think, as the highest form of nationalism, a way of projecting strength and holding on to great power status as other countries e eclipse them in other areas, especially in terms of industrial production. Okay, so I've mentioned that 19th century liberals sought to promote free trade to avoid suffering, to respect the individual, to avoid government intervention. Right? Well, what were they doing overseas? What were they doing spreading European influence uh, around the globe? What is the relationship between their values and those political actions? Well, you know, there are some you know, perhaps surprising ways in which the, the liberal tradition, especially the European Enlightenment tradition, uh, led European explorers and colonizers um, 
overseas. Uh, you know, a quest for universal knowledge, uh, a quest to catalog uh, the natural world and human societies, uh, you know, certainly played their part in contributing to expansion. We can see the example, I mean, Charles Darwin comes to mind of botanists, naturalists, biologists trying to catalog nature to find new plants, new medicines, you know, to understand evolution. We could look also to the role of Christianity and in particular to the role of Christian mis missionaries, missionaries uh, and, and missionary efforts at reform. Right here, you know, I think there is an enormous irony in that it was the effort to end the slave trade that brought missionaries to Africa in many cases, right? And so the effort to reform abuses uh, actually ended up leading to greater control, at least in some cases. Right, where you, you know, would see in the context of missionary activity, uh, you know, the kinds of arguments of cultural superiority, or our faith is superior, our culture is superior. Why Europeans often asked themselves, did the Industrial Revolution happen in Europe? Well, they would explain it by pointing to middle class values, hard work, restraint self-sacrifice. They thought these values would benefit everyone everywhere, uh, and they sought to spread those values overseas. Okay, so in addition to these sort of self-serving uh, presentations of uh, European culture and values, we can look to, to economics, to the enormous expansion of trade especially in the generation after 1848. That is, in the 20 years after 1848, the world economy doubled, right? And the motor of that economic change was coming from, from Europe. It was coming from the transport revolution. It was coming from a communications revolution. Right? You had the steam engine. Uh, shortly after, um, you, you, you had the, the telegraph. Um, so trade expands dramatically with steamships making the world a much smaller place. Right? Europeans were no longer simply taking raw materials uh, from overseas territories, or uh, in, in many cases they, they were, but to continue to do so uh, demanded new kinds of infrastructure. Right? They needed to build new deep water ports in order to continue trading. They needed railways, they needed bridges, they needed telegraph stations, right? In each of these cases that involved going and building in, in foreign territories, right? And those efforts to build infrastructure often led to, led to conflict uh, and it led European powers to go in and assert themselves uh, to, to protect what often started out as private investment. Um, now, before the last, say, the last 20 years, the, the last 30 years of the, the 19th century, you know, Europeans uh, really made fairly limited territorial claims. And, and most of the territorial claims that European powers did make up to that point in the late 19th century tended to be along the coast. That is, you know, if we look at the European presence, especially in Africa, uh, there is a very long-standing presence in, in major port cities, but very little into the interior. 
Um, and so, you know, this is really the, the, the big change of the, the late 19th century. And, you know, this process that I've been describing where you would often have private, inve private investment going in first, you would have invent, uh, adventurers, you would have entrepreneurs, risk takers, um, you know, going in first and then governments would follow them. Uh, to give you maybe the most important, famous example, you know, the construction of the Suez Canal, right, is started by private business. Uh, it was complete in 1869, but you know, after the canal is complete, right, the British and French essentially took over Egypt to guarantee uh, the payment of loans uh, and the that the, the had financed the canal. Right. When Egyptian soldiers revolted, the British crushed them and established a protectorate in Egypt in 1882. Right. So this is just an example of you know, what historians often call men on the spot, whether they are local military officials or their business interests who go and um, you know, essentially uh, you know, do, do their own thing, get themselves into trouble in many cases, and then call London, call Paris, and ask for military backup. Um, you know, you know, oftentimes they faced the, excuse me, they, they, they forced the government's hand. Uh, these, these characters would negotiate with local, uh, local groups. They would leak their exploits to the press. Uh, and then when things got, got out of hand or, or problems emerged, they, they would turn back to, to the government, to the military, um, to, to protect them. Uh, you know, the British historians in particular often refer to their empire as having been acquired in a fit of absent-mindedness, in the sense that it, we don't see a really coherent plan from early on uh, on the part of national political figures. Um, now, uh, you know, I, I've been stressing that the economy was growing dramatically, especially in the 1850s, 1860s, into the 1860s. Then there is a sharp economic downturn from 1873 to, to 1895, um, where agri agricultural prices fall, uh, but it spirals into a Great Recession. Um, and you know that that recession hits all of the major European powers. It hits the United States as well, uh, and it's in that period after 1870 that the you know, liberal powers in Europe, who, who um, uh, advocated free trade, who thought that markets would uh, would solve all of their problems, increasingly those European powers turned away from free trade, and they imposed tariffs, and they imposed a variety of. Um, of protectionist measures. And in that context, from the 1870s onwards, uh, you know, the relationship between these European powers and empire began to shift. Right? The European colonizers increasingly looked to overseas colonies uh, and, and colonization as a kind of zero-sum game. Right. You know, especially on the European mainland with the emergence of uh, a newly unified Italy and especially Germany, uh, we see a ratcheting up of nationalist competition on the European mainland. That, that fight, those, those competitions end up getting uh, projected overseas.
Okay, now there, there is a major milestone that I want to, to underscore in 1884-1885. It's known as the Berlin Conference, uh, sometimes known as the Congo Conference, which formalized a set of rules um, European colonizers used to claim territory. Right? This was a discussion among the colonizers. There was no input from, uh, in particular, from, uh, from, from African leaders. Uh, but this really marks the outset of what's known as the scramble for Africa. Uh, and in the generation from 1884, 1885, until World War I, you know, this is the period when European empires go planting their flag you know, across Africa into the interior, uh, but also in in Asia, you can see the emergence of treaty ports um, along the coast of China, where you know Western powers are competing with one another for access to the Chinese market. Um, right, for all of these European powers, uh, I want us to to argue that overseas empire it it offered something different for all of them, right? If we look at at Great Britain, right, the the dominant global power of the 19th century. Um, by the time we make it to the late 19th century, in industrial terms, uh, Great Britain is outpaced by the United States, by Germany, is increasingly threatened by Japan. Uh, and so you know, conquering overseas empire is a way for Great Britain to make up uh, for its shortcomings, especially in, in industry. Um, for Italy, but especially for Germany, the prospect of, of, of winning, of conquering overseas empire allows them to get a foot onto the, the, the global stage. Right? The Germans were very self-conscious about being a late starter, about you know, not having the extensive overseas holdings um, that, that France or, or Great Britain did. Uh, and this you know, sort of satisfied a very growing populist, often racist political base. I mean, you can hear in the words of groups like the, the Pan-German League, you know, we stand ready at the call of our Kaiser to step into the ranks and allow ourselves dumbly and obediently to be led against the enemy's shots. But we may also demand in exchange that the reward come to us, which is worth the sacrifice. And the reward is this, that we shall be a conquering people, which takes its position, uh, it, it takes its portion of the world itself. Deutschland wach auf. Germany wake up. Right? This was the kind of populist appeal that the German political elite was trying to satisfy. Uh, and you know, the, the Kaiser and the circle of advisors around the German Kaiser thought that by satisfying th those kinds of populist demands, they could perhaps avoid uh, granting meaningful democratic reforms. But you see the same kind of logic and the same kind of rhetoric in a whole range of European countries. Right? This uh, empire provided an outlet for younger sons looking for glory. It provided you know, evidence of manliness, of a kind of European uh, superiority. Uh, for France, uh, you know, this was critical, especially in the wake of defeat to Germany or you know, defeat to Prussia in the Franco-Prussian War, uh, which led to German unification. Right? And we saw you know, a couple of weeks ago, um, when looking at the initial conquest of Algeria, Jennifer Sessions you know, made the, the fundamental point that all French political traditions, whether they be monarchist, 
right? whether they be Bonapartist, whether they be Republican, like they all embraced empire as a way of minimizing divisions at home. Um, but you know, this you know, e expansion of the 1880s was, was much greater. Um, just in terms of simply the number of square miles that France and other European countries claimed. Right? And Al Algeria stands apart, sort of the crown jewel of France's overseas holdings. But in terms of the sheer number of square miles, it's really the, uh, the sort of the so-called new nationalism from the 1880s onwards um, that is much, much more dramatic. Um, and, and so, you know, in the context of this loss to, to, to Germany, France knew that it could not seek direct revenge against Germany. It just was impossible. Germany was too strong. The, the population of newly unified Germany was only slightly larger than France's, but it was growing much faster. In fact, the, the French population was, was barely growing at all. Right. The farmers in the countryside, they looked to preserve family estates so the next generation could remain independent, uh, while Germany's population continued to grow at one of the fastest rates in Europe. So in 1890, 20 years after German unification, uh, Germany had a population of almost 50 million, while France was at 38. Right. So France's dramatic expansion overseas uh, moving in the 1880s into Indochina and then taking extensive stretches of sub-Saharan Africa, especially in Western Africa, allowed the French Third Republic to assert its military power without provoking Germany, to provide an outlet to young men, to provide uh, stories of national triumph, to begin to help to make up for the lost provinces of Alsace and Lorraine. Okay, now French historians divide its modern empire into two phases, uh, one of assimilation on the one hand and then association on the other. These are two basic keywords for the study of the French empire. Okay, so to, to start with the assimilationist phase, it ran from around 1880 to 1914. This was the initial massive ex expansion of French colonial holdings. Expi uh, inspired, at least in theory, by French Republican values, spreading civilization, spreading education, science, you know, spreading these uh, around the world. Now, I think it's very easy to take a cynical reading of Republican values, right? They were certainly self-serving and often hypocritical, um, but Alice Conklin asks us to take them seriously. She doesn't ask us to take them at face value. She doesn't ask us to accept Republican ideology uncritically, but to think hard about the ways Republican values shaped French action overseas. Where did the French concentrate their attention and ambitions? To what degree did universal secular values constrain French action, if at all? The French never treated West Africa Algeria, or any other part of the empire, exactly like the French mainland. But they distinguished themselves from other imperialists and from earlier versions of the French empire in their effort to create a republican empire. So I want you to, to think about, well, what does that mean? What, what was a republican empire? Is the, the very expression a contradiction in terms? After World War I, the effort to 
assimilate colonial territories to the mainland faltered. The French grew much more wary of eliminating local elites and establishing their own forms of governance after the war. They sought to associate established local elites with French colonial governance. Right? This is the phase known as association. Uh, and you might think of it as a version of what the British called indirect rule, allowing locals to hold on to a good degree of power, especially in the interior, and concentrating the French presence in trading ports in cities. Now, the buzzword in France at the time uh, was mise en valeur. And so mise en valeur simply means to make it pay. Right? The French, after World War I, they wanted to make the empire pay. Right? After the devastation of World War I, uh, France looked overseas to its empire as a source of strength both as a reservoir for soldiers, uh, you know, the conscription campaign for African soldiers during World War I had been an unprecedented uh, success. But Republican elites also looked to the empire as a source of new markets and potentially manpower to help rebuild from the devastation of war. In a France that was really you know, anxious and unsure of its standing as a great power in the, the 20th century world, increasingly you saw the expression of the France of 100 million Frenchmen, that is taking credit for the entire population of the, the French empire. You know, and even into the 1920s and 1930s, you know, many ardent imperialists thought that uh, you know, France's standing on the world stage depended on spreading the French language, on spreading French values. Right? We can talk about how, to what degree uh, that, that worked at all, the degree to which the colonial enterprise even really tried uh, in the first place. Okay, now... Uh, economic historians who look back over the history of the French Empire have reached uh, an overwhelming consensus that overseas expansion actually hurt the French economy overall. That is, I mean, there were winners and there were losers, of course, but that on balance, the headlong scramble for overseas territory ended up propping up declining industries with powerful lobbyists and political connections rather than young dynamic sectors of the economy where France enjoyed uh, a competitive advantage. Empire, it turns out, propped up textile manufacturers and brewers, um, but it hurt the young automobile and aircraft industry uh, industries where France uh, initially led the, uh, led the world. Right? And so on balance, the uh, economists and economic historians tell us empire actually seems to have held the economy back. Uh, that, that empire, you know, for all that it enabled certain sectors um, of the French economy to take advantage of overseas population, that if we look at the economy of, uh, as a whole, most economists think that, um, well, that it was a mistake, that it was a break on economic activity rather than a boom. Um, but the degree to which French Republican ideology drove that expansion, right, the degree to which a faith in science and universal rights drove colonizers uh, to claim overseas territories, to deprive colonial subjects of their rights, remains among the most active debates among historians today, uh, and one that um, I, I hope we can continue in your, discuss your discussion sections.